This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. Good day, greetings, hello, you're with Art at the End of the World, the podcast that features artists, entertainers, and cultural leaders speaking about what it is to make art here at the end. And my name is Mark Wigmore. Thank you for checking in. Welcome to the second episode of the new season being supported by the new Classical FM and the Zoomer Podcast Network. Very happy to be here. Very happy to uh, be continuing this experiment of a podcast and so thrilled that uh, people were in touch over the last week and enjoyed uh, what we did. In fact, last week, Montreal musician Alexander Streliski was here. It was a very special conversation uh, and people wrote me to say hello and share their love for Alexandra. And uh, I know she had a listen to it. Uh, her record is Inscape, and if you missed that conversation, you can listen at classicalfm.ca or anywhere you enjoy podcasts. I want to let you know that this episode is sponsored by Red Eye Media, a leading arts and entertainment communications company, very good at what they do, uh, working with award-winning clients, including the Musical Stage Company, SummerWorks Performance Festival, and many others, redeyemedia.ca for info on what they do. And Art at the End of the World also brought to you by Crow's Theatre, one of the country's most acclaimed arts organizations and based in Toronto's vibrant East End community. Crow's Theatre creates unforgettable productions that examine and illuminate the pivotal narratives of our times. Crowstheatre.com for info and tickets. So, just saying that right now really does bring us into today's conversation. In the most powerful state on earth, a group of conspirators have assassinated their populist leader. A civil war erupts as revolutionaries and politicians contend with what they've done and what's to come. Groundling Theatre Company and Crow's Theatre present Shakespeare's Julius Caesar. Don't miss an exceptional cast of Canada's finest classical actors. Take on Shakespeare's timeless political masterpiece, Julius Caesar, at Streetcar Crow's Nest. Tickets are on sale now at crowstheatre.com. There's a moment from the radio spot for the new production of Shakespeare's Julius Caesar on stage until this weekend, February 2nd, unless it gets extended. I think there's a strong chance that it will. But at the end of the day, it really does come down to booking and so on and so forth. I went to see this production a couple weeks ago at Streetcar Crow's Nest on Carla and Dundas. Uh, it's a co-pro between Crows and Groundling Theater, two excellent theater companies. And it is... Out of this world, powerful, thoughtful, the acting is incredible, and uh, in the midst of all that's going on in the world, and certainly with Iran and what's happening uh, in the States right now, certainly with uh, a real power struggle there, this very contemporary version of Julius Caesar, I think it hits uh, pretty close to the bone. In fact, uh, any theater or television or film that deals with big power uh, is very compelling at the moment. That's to be sure. But this Julius Caesar, really on target, 
And my guest today is not only the general and artistic director of Crow's Theater, but also the director of this production. And he managed to get some of the best and brightest from Stratford, the Stratford Festival, and some of the other major theater companies to star in this. And it is just a powerhouse cast. I, have, I really haven't stopped thinking about uh, how incredible this uh, this piece is. And I've been wanting to get Chris on for a long time, so I'm so thrilled that uh, we've fi- finally had a chance to, uh, to sit down. What Julius Caesar does so well is that it shows the flaws on either side of a power struggle. You've got Caesar, of course, uh, himself reveling in the moment, clearly out of line in many ways, drunk with power to some degree, and he's pushing towards authoritarian rule, very much a populist set of ideals. Uh, he's creating a regime that reflects that. And then we've got these intellectual elites who are conspiring against him. They want to kill him and very misguided in their own way. And the masses are seemingly swayed very easily. So how perfect to put this modernized Julius Caesar on stage right now at this moment. And that's where I'm going to start with Chris today uh, with this particular production. But uh, we go through a lot, his entire career, his thoughts on the power of theater, and just a really thoughtful guy. One thing that he's done with this production is he's uh, created a, a an introduction and an epilogue that gives further context and commentary on this Shakespeare masterpiece, and it creates a uh, a very heated conversation based on what they do after the show and maybe even during intermission. I know this because uh, I, I was witness to these conversations, people uh, getting in, in heated uh, maybe arguments or debates about what they're experiencing, and I wanted to talk to Chris about the ability to move the political needle in any direction with art, with theater. In 2020, are we too entrenched in our tribes, in our political thinking to be moved by the commentary of artists? Is that where we're at? Just a, a little more about Chris. He's been uh, the driving force of Crow's Theater uh, since 2008. I've spoken to him numerous times on my different programs. Uh, he really watched over the building of their new facility. It is one of the most sought after theaters in the city now. Uh, it's like the perfect amount of seating. It can do a lot, very malleable space. For this Shakespeare production, it's in the round. I've seen stadium seating on either side, which has worked very well. So it's a great physical space, but it's also been very welcoming to other theater companies. In fact, Chris is known for collaborating with uh, the Obsidians of the world and and Stratford and Groundling and on and on it goes. And it's a real feather in his cap. And I mean, I think maybe the biggest risk here was building this facility in Toronto's East End. Uh, people sometimes joke, if you know something about Toronto, that uh, Toronto's West End, they call it Friday night, and Toronto's East End is sometimes known as Sunday morning. <laughs> so that gives you some sort of a picture. So he, they took a bit of a risk, but they built a wonderful facility, and I think what's happened is the community has really supported it, And it's also helped to change the culture of Toronto's East End. And there are theaters popping up everywhere and restaurants and just culture is moving to the East End. And I think Crows has a lot to do with that. Something Chris has done over the years, too, is he's really tried to bring in a a young audience. And that might include working with a lot of uh, musicians and pop musicians. The band Star is out of Montreal. 
Uh, he's worked with them numerous times to put on theatrical productions. Uh, members of Billy Talent and Broken Social Scene have put on productions there with Chris. He's the recipient of the John Hirsch and the Ken McDougall Awards as well, the recipient of the 2013 Seminovich Prize, the most prestigious and valuable performing arts prize in Canada. So the man is a talent. And we've had a chance to talk numerous times in a shortened, you know, maybe five, ten minutes to talk about a particular production, but to uh, get to sit down with him at Crow's Theatre in the, I guess it was a green room, sort of deep uh, in the bowels of the the Crow's Theatre complex. Uh, It was just a real treat and very special. And so here is my conversation with the great Chris Abraham on art at the end of the world. I saw Julius Caesar on uh, over the weekend. Great. I have questions. Good. <laughs> you know, typically with these things, I would, you know, uh, meander through mm-hmm. your career mm-hmm. and so yep. on and, and so forth. And we will do that. Mm-hmm. But something struck me about this production, and, and some people are going to hear this, are going to see it, mm-hmm. and some people aren't. But it doesn't really mm-hmm. matter because ultimately... You come at this project as a director, Mm -hmm. as the artistic director of this Mm -hmm. company. With this production, it feels like there's an intention Mm -hmm. to start a conversation. Mm -hmm. Obviously, you have to worry about Shakespeare Mm -hmm. and craft and the quality of your actors Mm -hmm. and everything. But it also looks to to spark a conversation in a very delicate political and cultural moment. Mm -hmm. It is, I admire Mm -hmm. that greatly, Mm -hmm. to even attempt it. And do you think that it is possible to get to people right now? Are they able to leave their judgments aside and their politics aside and just sort of take this in and let it stir the pot a little bit? Or are are we sort of, has that ship sailed to some degree? It's a great question. It's what I've been thinking about this morning, actually. We got a review in the Toronto Star this morning, which, which... I read it. Yeah, which I found really sad. Really? Yeah, I found the review sad. Because it essentially said that, or what I took from it, was there was something about the production that people should be protected from. Right. I did read that. You did, you you read the same thing. I read the exact yeah, same thing, yeah. and and uh, I didn't feel the same yeah. way. I, yeah. It actually struck me as interesting. <laughs> I thought, oh gosh, here we are in the yeah. in the era of triggers. Yeah. In the era of oh, be careful. You wouldn't want to, yeah. you know, get your feelings hurt or get, you know, you wouldn't want to, you know, there are depictions of violence and so mm-hmm. on. And maybe mm-hmm. that there's something there. I mean, it's interesting because it's it comes up not only with this production, but I've seen it emerge as a kind of um, critical. Uh, f- fashion in the last couple of years, and, and some of some of it I understand, but I also think about it in the context of other art forms, popular art forms like *Parasite*, like you know, m- movies and television. Right. There's so much violence in general mm-hmm. in our culture and in our storytelling, and there's all sorts of reasons for why that is. But I do notice that in the theater, there's a particular sensitivity to violence and depictions of violence in the theater. And I was asking myself this morning, why is that? Um, the intimacy. Yeah. I think that that's probably the, the, the most straightforward and obvious reason. 
it's funny because it wasn't something that I thought much about when we were doing the production. Well, especially when you do Julius Caesar. Mm-hmm. I mean, the whole focus is politics yeah. and violence. <clears throat> yes. That is, and it's been done yeah. for centuries. Yeah. I mean, it was interesting because my team said, when they saw the show, they said, absolutely, we've got to make sure that we put some some warnings on our website so people are prepared for what they're they're coming into. And I said, well, I mean, it is Julius Caesar, and, and you know, we do know what happens. And it's a political assassination, and it's a violent political assassination as a starting point. So, anyways, that's a great first question because it, it uh, I did have some aims with the production, and they had really not very little to do with violence. They had more to do with emotion and the relationship between uh, emotion and reason in democratic systems, in political discourse, and in general in, I guess, the human experience and the human psyche. I think that that continuum between the mind and the heart is something that Shakespeare is very interested across his entire body of work, and I think it plays out in a really important and 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 timely way in this piece. So that's kind of what I was interested in exploring: how people engage with political language. Do they engage with it with their heads? Do they engage with it with their hearts? How is that working in our world right now? It's amazing to me how these fundamental <coughs> stories, these, you know, you look at what he goes after with his various tragedies and comedies and you could look at them as a template for just about any political or cultural situation that mm-hmm. we run into yeah. uh, they you know it's just sort of repeats itself over and over again and we can go back to shakespeare and say well here was his thinking mm-hmm. on this particular thing almost yeah. some sort of a bible <laughs> yeah. in some sort of way now yeah. i will say that uh, given the current climate that we're in given everything that's going on with Iran and Canada mm-hmm. right now, mm-hmm. given the, the intensity of this mm-hmm. production, the mm-hmm. violence of this production, I did feel, a, which is very rare for me, <laughs> I, f- I felt a, a sense of dread mm-hmm. while watching this. Mm-hmm. And uh, as much as I was exhilarated yeah, by the sure. performances and thinking about the mm-hmm. words and thinking about the context, it just, very rare, I can and, honestly and say. what is that dread? Uh, I guess I just feel closer yeah. to these events. So often I'm just being told a tale. It doesn't really affect my life at the end of the day. You know, typically I can walk away from something mm-hmm. like that. And, and even though there are events like that happening in the world, yeah. they're not right here. Yeah. And, and for some reason, everything feels a little closer. Yeah, this time. I understand that. Yeah. That's not really a question. <laughs> no, it's interesting, but I wanna, I, I'm just super curious about it. If you were to use a different word to describe... Uh, you're feeling other than dread. Mm-hmm. What is that? What is that dread? Fear. Uh huh. Fear about what? Uh, well, fear about that the world is becoming a little unhinged yeah. around me, and yeah. that uh, it's as, as much as I want to believe in the goodness of mm-hmm. my community and my country and so on. Mm-hmm. It, it's it is starting to feel like mm-hmm. it's coming apart a little, and so of course that's what yeah. exactly what we're watching. Well, you know? I do think that that is. In particular, the Roman plays, but I do think that that is Julius Caesar. Right. The play, while not entirely bleak, is really looks at human nature and the behavior of groups of people in particular through a very dark lens. 
You're also putting us there with what you're doing atmospherically too. Of there, course, there's, yeah. there's a war. Literally, we can of hear course, the war yeah. going on. Yeah, we can hear the crowds yeah. thundering in disapproval yeah. or approval yeah. behind us. It's quite effective. I've had the com- uh, this conversation actually with my wife because she's been with me as um, sort of I've been making this production. Yeah, I think we try to retain a fair amount of. Op- we have kids. We try to retain some optimism in our household, and yeah. and I have felt as I've been working on the play a truth in the play that is uh, difficult to look at. I'm compelled by that. Let's talk about the audience for a moment, because when I walked out of the production, uh, there was this argument happening. Hmm. It was quite audible. I could hear it. And people were talking about the final 10, 15 minutes of the mm-hmm. of the show, sure. and, and and some people felt like uh, it was very important and mm-hmm. thought it was the best part of the show. Yeah. Other people thought that I don't, I didn't want, I didn't need that. Yeah. I didn't need to be told. Yeah. A, B, and C. Yeah. I don't want to give too much away, but uh, there is sort of a, 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 I guess we would call it an epilogue mm-hmm. that you, yeah. you and your team have created to give some more context to this yeah. moment. That was the moment where it sort of led to my first question here mm-hmm. today, which is, you know, can we, can we affect thinking with art right now? Is, is it lost? <laughs> or, or are people just going to sort of dig in and say, no, I didn't like that. I didn't like being told about uh, how I should feel politically, about some of the motivations of some of these characters, while others cheer you on. Yeah. My greatest aspiration in the theater is for people to think their own thoughts and for them to know that whatever I'm doing in the theater is towards that aim. Even if there is a proposition made on stage that they disagree with, Mm -hmm. my intention is always for people more than just think their own thoughts but feel their own feelings. I mean, it's, it's funny, like, I think my lesson about this sort of fundamental truth of this relationship between the mind and the heart or reason and emotion, I really respect that in terms of an audience's experience. I think it's really important for both of those things to be activated in an audience. They have to feel something and they have to think something. Um, And I want an audience to have that dual experience. And whatever they think, whatever they feel is the goal. I don't need them to think or feel anything in particular. I want them to wake up to their own experience of their inner lives. Because I think we walk around often feeling, I mean, what I'm grateful for when I go to the theater is that experience. To wake up to what I really think and feel. Not what I'm, not what I feel like I'm supposed to think and feel, but what I think and feel. And that's what I think art does. Right. So we're typically in this sort of uh, house of media mirrors just beaming sure. at us in a million directions. You got it. We ping pong through it. Yeah. And here we take this moment to truly say yes or no. We have quiet, we have quiet and we yeah. have focus and we have a group of people and there is something about being in a room with a bunch of other people and the kind of attention and sense of one's own body and other bodies around you in the theater that I think at its best is provides that experience. So as far as that argument outside the theater, I mean, I don't know. We did a play last year called The Assembly, which was a documentary piece oh, no, about polarization in public discourse. Right. And it's part of a whole series that is ongoing that we're now doing around the world that is really about this question of can 
what is going on in the way that we speak to each other, how we listen to each other, how we work things out. And it was another show that met with some some resistance in Toronto in particular. Right. I just try to observe it. There is right. a lot. There's a lot going on sure. always, and yeah. there is a lot going on in, in around conversations around how we talk to each other, yeah. and what is okay and what isn't okay. I've I've checked myself about twenty times <laughs> so far in this last twenty minutes. Yeah. yeah, it takes me back to the the play a little bit because I think if people are not reacting, are not in a reactive place when they're experiencing a piece of art. But actually really listening to themselves, I do trust that force in artistic communication. You know, even though you felt some dread when mm -hmm. you saw the show. To me, that's a good thing because I feel something. You feel something. Right. And, that's, and you started off by saying that you feel, you made you think about the world and it made right. you think about the proximity of this play to the world in a different way than you've experienced before. And you right. struggled with that. Right. I like that, and I like th I like you sharing that because it makes me think about how scared people are right now. Right, right, and uh, maybe uh, that I think that has something to do with what you read in the Star today too. Yeah, yeah, I mean, sure. it was actually a very good review. Mm -hmm. There was nothing. There was literally not a bad sentence in there, as far as or or a, or a sentence that described it as being poorly thought through in any no, but it, fashion. But it, I guess what what it it seemed to be warning. Uh, people against that experience. And maybe that's just we're in that moment of warning, <laughs> warning maybe. each other that you will have emotions. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. It's interesting in the framing of it. Even we, you know, we're playing the radio spot at Classical FM, yeah. and it talks about this group of elites who uh, are unhappy with an authoritarian mm -hmm. and populist leader who is mm -hmm. gaining power they make this decision and are left to deal with the fallout mm -hmm. of, of this assassination yeah pretty obvious to me that you are trying to make uh, some correlations between what's happening in this play and what's happening around us i think yeah. it's framed to to pique our interest that way of course yeah. so in that sense it does feel down the middle it's like there's no there's no right or wrong answers here as, as far as what we're... You're not mm -hmm. pointing at any individual political group and saying... No, no. Yes, no, right, wrong. No. But f certainly the kind of rise of populist political leaders and populist movements around the world are certainly in our, in our conversation in the piece, right. and that, that's important. But I also feel like that democracy and the principles that underlie democracy... I mean, I really believe in them, but I think that they are under siege in new ways around the world in a way that's really important for us to pay attention to. Right. There's a reason why they're meeting with success uh, with people around the world. And, you know, we, 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 if we consume news and we consume thinking about that, I think it's important that we pay attention to why that might be going on in the world. One of the words that gets thrown around uh, both with Crow's mission and even about this particular production, Julius Caesar, is urgent <laughs> sure. There's an urgency. Yeah. Who brings that to the table? Is that you bringing that to the table? Well, I think with Shakespeare in particular, the first question, or with a classic text, with, with any text that's, I mean, with any play, one of the first questions you learn when you're training to be a director is to ask yourself, why now? Right. Why do it now? Especially with Shakespeare, because there are 500 years of interpretations. And that has to sit alongside what is Shakespeare's 
main idea that underpins his play. You know, that's what I usually start with is to try to come to some understanding of what the main idea in a play is and then fashion my own articulation of that and connect that to uh, why do this now. So maybe the urgency comes from, you know, that question. Is that is the urgency, does it go beyond that for you, uh, beyond this production? Do you feel like that is a moniker or a, uh, a definition that can be just put into the Crows Theatre thinking each and every year? Is there an urgency to everything this... Well, there's a time, not re- yes and no. Right. I think that I think that there are some productions that I pen or direct or am a driving force behind, which speak to that impulse or that desire that I have as an artist. And then there are other uh, there are other calls that I feel as an artistic director that have to do with uh, an audience that we're growing here and different kinds of experience. If anything, I would say that what I've really tried to do while I've been here is to think about creating really different experiences of liveness for a growing community that help us to understand what's possible uh, in the theater in a live context and how we understand story, story, each other, and the world we're living in. And that sometimes that the, the vector of that is tragedy or you know challenging material sometimes it's laughter right sometimes it's music sometimes it's music we've seen lots of that i'll I'll point out too and to your credit i walked into the intermission of julius caesar and there were young people there were old people there were weirdos like me there were people of color Mm -hmm. uh there were just people who were totally local people from across town yeah that is the greatest right that's like the best thing you can really ask for isn't it yes uh, the other not part, every theater can not say every that. theater d- does that. No, nope. it's true. But the other part that I mean, I really aspire to is uh, return visits across multiple, very different kinds of experiences. Right. Why that's important is because embedded in a season for any artistic director are a series of ideas that are connected. Um, sometimes very consciously, and sometimes less consciously. The pleasure is to have an audience that's present through over time over a season over multiple seasons to be engaged in that conversation through its multiple connection points right. uh, that would be ideal and of course that's the ideal You're listening to Art at the End of the World on the Zoomer Podcast Network. I'm Mark Wigmore. My conversation with Crows Theatre's Chris Abraham continues in a moment. Wigmore with you here on Art at the End of the World. Let's get back to my talk with the thoughtful theater mind from Crow's Theater, Chris Abraham. The reality in this job is you're always, whatever you're succeeding at, there are 17,000 other things that you're failing at, and you just have to get comfortable with that. <laughs> How are you? That is tough. I mean, <laughs> did you always see yourself as, as a leader, as somebody in this who can handle, you know, being walked up to with, uh, you know, notes and, hey, I need you to sign mm-hmm. off on this, and there's finances and creative things and, you know, uh, being handed to you at all different times and from all different directions? No, not really. And, yeah. and all I've really ever wanted to do was 
to create opportunities to be in the rehearsal hall. <laughs> and then at a certain point, I, I felt like that that was maybe not enough. And I wanted, uh, I wanted a relationship with, with an audience over time. Right. And that led to this. Yeah. I still most understand the rehearsal hall. You, you must of, have you must have looked forward to sh- Julius Caesar. And just I that. always look forward to like, this being is, in rehearsal. This is yeah. my my sweet spot. This is what I really do. I I really I really love working with actors, and I love the process of decoding and getting underneath a text. I love the process of understanding how conflicting intentions and desire produce drama and produce story. Uh, I could do that every day of my life forever. Running a theater company, I I'm, I'm still feel like I'm new at that, and there's a tremendous amount to learn. The co-pros, yeah. I mean, you've, we're with Groundling on this one, mm-hmm. Obsidian, Theater Francais, on and on it goes. Does that make it tougher as a when you're directing a show like julius caesar suddenly you have these other equal voices in the room saying "Eh, i don't know about that decision or what have you no not really i mean you i mean working with people is great and it's hard it's democracy Uh, yeah and (laughs) and there are always there are always challenges in all forms of collaboration but as you pointed out i think my view is that collaboration is always better you you are changed by the people that you work with and you you learn about yourself and as an organization you learn about yourself through those through those relationships and and the reality is is that collaboration with other organizations we're all we're all talking to different people we all have different communities that we're in dialogue with and i want those communities to meet you and i are pretty much neighbors uh, yes. You live not far from me. Yeah. Um, but uh, remind me, were you a Toronto guy? I, I'm trying to remember. I grew up in Montreal originally. Oh, yeah, that's right, of course. And then, uh, and then I moved to, my parents moved us to Markham when I was a teenager. Montreal to Markham. Yeah. Not a classic move. Not a, not a classic move, I guess. Uh, I guess GTA, though. GTA. I mean, in fairness. But it was, where I, where I grew up was a really, where I spent my teen years was a great, place to spend my teen years because it's where I discovered the theater. And I actually started my first theater company there when I was, I think, 13. Mom and dad weren't theater people? They were not at all, no. Um, they were they were Americans and they were teachers, and but they really supported my habit. And a bunch of us are still practicing. A bunch of us are, are still in the theater or actors. Tracy Michaelitis, Salvatore Migliore, Christopher Morris... Many of us have made our way into the profession and stayed there. Was it a high school thing? Was it? it, it we had an arts high school in our in our community, Unionville, right. Unionville High School, and then I went to the Catholic school. Um, but we had a very vibrant community theater scene, and there was a company that we started that was that that that's still around. That is. Um, uh, a theater company that has to be run by and operated by and not necessarily for, but as a testing ground for, for high school age students. Mm-hmm. And so we all cut our teeth there and it was a great time. It is a good time. I, I grew up in Victoria. Mm-hmm. We, I went to Claremont, which mm-hmm. ended up getting a guy named Matthew Howe, who mm-hmm. became, you know, he was very well known in the theater community and he'd done quite mm-hmm. well. And he basically turned it into a theater school. He mm-hmm. had a, somehow got the funding to build a theater yeah, while we amazing. were there and it was all state of the art and it mm-hmm. was incredible. And then I'm in the Big Brothers program. My little brother goes mm-hmm. for, to Wexford. So mm-hmm. I've been there 
a lot over the last couple of years, oh. taking in the Christmas shows yep. and so on and so forth. And it is just, it's a fun time for those mm-hmm. kids mm-hmm. to really get their heads in it. Yeah, I think... It's uh, magical. It's magical, not not unlike team sports, but I think uh, being a part of something that is bigger than you as an individual, as a teenager, is very powerful. Yeah. Your kid's going to do this? I don't know. My my daughter's 13 and my son is 7. Uh, my daughter flirted a little bit with theater when she was younger and she's... She's not there anymore. She's she wants to be right now. She wants to be a coder. Right. And my son is. That's what she's smart. Yeah. Right. Exactly. What the hell are yes. we doing? Exactly. God, she's gonna be just like <laughs> waving at us from, uh, you know, her yacht. Yeah, for but, sure. Which is pretty great. And and so uh, Markham and theater scene. Was it mm-hmm. drama right away, or was it into musical theater and that sort of I, stuff? I started out in musical theater. Of course. Actually, yeah. <laughs> what because were the that's shows? Where the, the first musical I did was West Side Story. Right, uh, and da, 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 da. had a yeah, had a cast of about I think fifty people, forty fifty people. In right, it's um, a lot of talent on stage. There's a lot of talent on stage, <laughs> but what I remember from that was just the potency of young people who decide they want to do something together. Yeah. I think that really taught me and taught a lot of us. That if we set our minds to something, we could really actually accomplish some things. That experience from like 13 to 16 or 17 more than anything shaped who i ended up becoming as an as an adult interesting yeah it, it you found not only a a group of peers but i'm i would imagine you took it as seriously then as you do now absolutely and you know yeah. well, this wasn't cheap either i think i think I think West Side Story cost us forty thousand dollars. We had to raise all that money. You did? Yeah, we bottle drives and (laughs) bake sales. Get out and sing in front of people or anything like that. Uh, We did do we did do those kind of things. You got to do those, yeah. But it's very powerful to 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 sort of self organize in that way as a group and be able to you know put on a show. What was uh, the next step after that? I got involved in a in a co op program out of my high school at the Graduate Center for Drama at UFT with uh, Colin Taylor and uh, a bunch of other people and I, I started to become a little bit involved in the Toronto theatre scene just as a kind of an apprentice and an outside eye when I was 17 or 18 mm-hmm. and uh, that led me away from the musical theatre and towards an undergrad degree at U of T, which didn't last very long. I knew that I wanted to be a director, and I got into the directing program at the National Theatre School. So I left U of T after a year and went to Montreal. How, to now, school. how would you even apply for something like that? You've got this experience with high school. Mm-hmm. You are just getting your feet wet at U of T. Mm-hmm. How do they say, we, we know that this person has something? There's a spark here. I don't, I don't know how they made that determination. I mean, I had done, for someone my age, I directed quite a few shows right. at 19. So, <laughs> so uh, there, there it was. <laughs> there it was. Yeah. When, you know, in the little micro community that I was in, which was aspiring theater directors, the National Theater School was really the place at that time to look to get training. And it was a well-funded program. And uh, I had a lot of opportunity to develop and, and to practice while I was there for two years. Was there a show that you think back on I think that was the one that really helped me to understand 
Uh, Where I was going. Yeah, yeah. I did uh, Howard Barker's The Possibilities, an, an excerpt of, uh, or sort of a portion of that, of that larger piece for my, sort of my thesis project. And I had, I had spent two years being a, a student at the National Theatre School being very confused. And it was, wasn't really until that, my fourth semester, that all of the things that I'd learned really came together for me. And I was able to reconnect to why I wanted to be a director, what my skill set was. And, uh, yeah, and I walked away feeling very, very grateful for my, my, my training there. Confidence level was always pretty solid through this? I, I would say that school was the most shaking in some way. Right. Probably necessarily so. Yeah. They got to bring you down a couple notches, right? <laughs> That's how it works. Yeah. And also just making conscious all of the things that were maybe not super conscious uh, as a kind of an aspiring director as a young person. You have to relearn as you become aware of what it is you're doing, you become self-conscious a little bit. Yeah. And I think that there was a self-consciousness that I was plagued with in my first year of theater school that, that, that I, I didn't know whether I would actually ever get over. Right. And I did. Yeah, I don't know. That, that feels like something that just keeps going on, right? You just keep going back to these fundamentals and tweaking nuances yeah. of this, that, and the other thing. And yeah. if, you, if you're an expert in anything, that's yeah. sort of an interesting part of the process. You know, I mean, that's one of, I mean, maybe, on. maybe you feel this way, but that's, I think, one of the, uh, if you can get into it, I'm experiencing as one of the pleasures or consolations of getting older. Yeah. Is more refined relationship to fixing the yeah. things that you're not great at. Yeah, if you can leave <laughs> the worry and the dread and the, you know, the sort of sense of, uh, uh, I'm, I'm just faking this whole thing. Yeah. This fraudulent activity that mm -hmm. I'm involved in. If you can put that on the leave it back behind burner you somehow, yeah. and, and actually focus on these little mm -hmm. professional tweaks that you mm -hmm. can do, it can be wonderful. Yeah. I yeah, just love sure. it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. At some point, you have this sort of spectacular moment in your career obviously it's what Stratford Shaw all those things start to happen mm -hmm. sort of immediately afterwards or is there no I spent I spent most of my 20s doing odd jobs at uh, different theaters right uh, around the city I worked at uh, worked at the bar at Factory Theater for a number of years front of house worked as a publicity assistant at Theatre Passamurai, then spent a couple of years working for Diane Weinrib. You must of know course. Diane. Of course, yeah, yeah. But just sort of decided that I was going to produce, spend my money kind of producing at the Fringe, and started a little company called Go Chicken Go, but be around. And I, I just saw Annie Baker's The Flick, yeah. at, at your wonderful yeah. production, which was outstanding, and yeah. I loved every second of it, and I love I Annie Baker. Yes. Uh, but... That's that world, isn't it? Like the yeah. you know, get in there and just kind of clean the place up and yep. make sure everything, all the different uh, parts of the machinery are oiled. Yes, part of it. And it was. I mean, I remember it being very, very exciting. I mean, it was definitely my universe in my twenties. Was I just wanted to be a part of the Toronto theater world? Yeah. That's that was the lim That was like basically the outer edge of the universe as I understood it. Right. So I was quite happy to be in all of those spaces uh, with all of 
these artists that were to me quite legendary. I learned a lot in that time and I was the beneficiary of a lot of support and guidance from folks like uh, Ken Gass, Lane Coleman, Andy McKim, Urjo Carreta, just to be around those buildings. Bob Baker, like basically every every theater in the city, there was a place for me to spend some time yeah. and do some kind of job and have some kind of contact with uh, artistic leadership of the organization. So while it was a real slog, I wasn't really getting paid to do what I was doing for a long time. I was I was super happy. Did you have to <laughs> fill in the gaps with the the, oh, bar- yeah. the barista gigs and things like this? I mean, I never really did those kind of jobs because I decided, well, you know, if I want to be in those buildings, I will I will work front of house, I'll work box office, I'll I'll yeah. do the, you know, yeah. I didn't do any of the I, I just stayed in the theater. Yeah, uh, my friend <clears throat> uh, Dave LeBlanc who writes for the Globe and Mail, he does <clears throat> all the architecture stuff for them. He sort of skipped all the real odd times too, just like you. Yeah. And I always thought, wow, what would my life have been if I didn't have to, you know, yeah. be in the kitchen and be in the Yeah. Good for you, I think. To just yeah, I mean I did yourself. I did get to work for Diane Weinrib for about three years, yeah. uh writing press releases sure. and yeah. That was it was works a certain part of your brain. Of course it does, yeah. <laughs> well, basically you are there to to celebrate at all costs. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, really. Um, and, and then that goes on to, to st- I mean, I don't want to uh, compress time sure. too much, but uh, Stratford and, mm-hmm. and everything you did, the Savinovich Prize, mm-hmm. must have been a very exciting time in your life when you actually, you know, sort of progress past these, these odd jobs in the theater to, to really start to get some of these opportunities. What was the first? Uh, I think big the one? first big one was uh, probably being asked to direct. Uh, Kristen Thompson's I, Claudia at the Tarragon was, I don't know if it was the first, it might have been the first play that I was paid to direct. Wow. The same room that they're in now? or It was in the studio. Okay. And it was with, uh, so my current wife right. was roommates with Kristen Thompson at the time. And it was Kristen's first play and she said, you know, would you would you like to direct? And I said, yes, absolutely. And, and so that that was a hugely exciting moment being in a in a theater that I had you know I used to come down from Markham every weekend for the Sunday pay weekends and that place was was very very high on my list of of if I could make it to the Tarragon (laughs) that would be you know I could die yeah I was I was very very excited about that and then and then from there I think I slowly but surely although the idea that there's a really to have a career as a director, I mean, most of my quote-unquote professional life, it seemed impossible. Right. But then at a certain point, I guess I got established and I started to get enough opportunities that I, I, I was surprised that I was able to make a living at being a director. Right. And then, then I was and I still am. I'm very, very grateful for that. Well, like, I'm not sure where I heard this or if it was just you and I talking and passing, but I know your your wife is very active and, and she's very passionate mm-hmm. about uh, the environment, the environment yeah. and so on and so forth. And community is very, very important to you. Mm-hmm. We've, we've touched on it a little bit, but it feels like all of that awareness and engagement has a lot to do with what you've what you've tried to do with crows too it's all sort of part and parcel it's all part of the same sort of energy and movement of Mm -hmm. let's get people together let's see what we can do to yeah i mean move the needle a little it's it's funny um 
my dad uh, my dad passed away this fall yeah and uh, thanks and um, not easy not easy and he was he was uh, he had been a priest in the early part of his life and then he went on to become a high school teacher and uh, was very active in sort of different kinds of social justice circles and I grew up in a household where making a difference in the world was a kind of a big deal for him right expectation i don't know that it was expectation but he he really he went through all sorts of different phases in his life but it really mattered to him that you try as best you can to move the needle somehow and community and other people and the the capacity of other people to do powerful things. He really believed in that, and I think he... It's quite an installation into uh, yeah someone like yourself to have somebody... Who yeah, I mean, I, I, I was always... I always looked up to that part of my dad, and, right. and, and, and he did have a sense of mission in his quiet way, which he continued into his retirement. I'm sure that that has had some deep impact on how I think about an artist's role. And, yeah... I still really believe in art and in the theater. I think the theater is more important than ever. Yeah. Uh, there were periods of my life where I really questioned the power of theater to theater's place in the world in the face of other forms of communication and storytelling. But with the advent of you know these kind of devices that we're sitting next to right now and um, the presence of screen in our, screens in our lives and the amount of information, the experience that I described to you of sitting in a room with other people uh, for a couple of hours around, you know, sometimes ancient stories, I just think is such an important uh, experience. And I've also had kids now, and so I, I, I see the different kinds of uh, relationships that they have to storytelling when they're in, in the theater versus going to the cinema or sitting in front of a screen. Mm-hmm. And I've learned to really value, even as I you know, don't understand exactly why all the time, there's something irreplaceable about the art form that I practice. Uh, and so I, it helps me feel really good about what it is we're, we're here doing. I believe that, even in my moments of dread and my yeah. disappointment <laughs> with the whole, you know, the whole process and everything that's mm-hmm. happening around us right mm-hmm. now, I truly do believe that mm-hmm. there is something wonderful about it and something to be gleaned if mm-hmm. done properly. Yeah. And uh, what, else, what else can we do exactly. aside from that? Great to have you here. Thanks so much. This, this is a long time coming. Yeah, an unexpected set of questions. I really enjoyed the interview. Thank you. There goes Chris. Really a pleasure to get a chance to sit down with him. I love talking to him and uh, just thinking big and not afraid to say what's on his mind and a guy who really has applied himself in the arts and uh, we're, we're the benefactors here in Toronto. Crowstheater.com for tickets to Julius Caesar. By the way, it, uh, it runs through the second. That's it. Don't forget you can listen to episodes of Art at the End of the World at classicalfm.ca and artattheendoftheworld.com. And everywhere you enjoy listening to podcasts, subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, everywhere. (laughs) Tune in. (laughs) 
thank you once again to our sponsors today, Red Eye Media and, of course, Crow's Theatre. And thanks to you. Thanks for checking out the show. We have an Art at the End of the World Facebook page. The Twitter handle is at Art at the End. You can find my Instagram handle at Wigdad. Not Wigmore, Wigdad. Uh, I'm back on Thursday on Art at the End of the World with a remix episode, maybe our pre-Oscars episode, I suppose, with the co-head of the Toronto International Film Festival, Cameron Bailey. And if you happen to hear the original episode last year, we're adding a bunch more to it uh, because we've had uh, conversations with Cameron since. So it really will be a remix episode on Thursday. Don't forget, you can hear my program, The Oasis, on the new Classical FM weekdays, 3 to 7 Eastern, 12 to 4 Pacific, at classicalfm.ca, and you can watch the broadcast live on YouTube if you prefer. And, of course, just on the FM radio, Toronto at 96.3, Coburg at 103.1, and Collingwood at 102.9. We're back on Thursday. Speak to you then, and for as long as we can. podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.